So how often do you get the whole story? Well, chances are not very regularly. For the very nature of the news media is to give you snippets. Some story breaks, and the news summarizes all the events and all the people involved in an exhaustive 30 seconds to two minutes. Even if you get a 15-minute episode, how much can you really understand about a complex situation in such a brief time? And yet we walk away feeling like an expert who can dogmatically throw our judgments around. Truth is, though, the whole story takes time, sometimes lots of time, and keen listening, as well as snippets and news flashes can so often skew the whole story, whether intentionally or not. By mere omission, a person can be made into a hero or a villain. You just don't mention the details that point in the other direction. And so also it can be With the doctrines of Scripture, we like our doctrines clean, attractive, and happy. And so any verses or facts of life that get messy or difficult, we tend to ignore or conveniently forget in the back of the theological pantry. Our Lord, though, prefers the whole story with all its complexity. And so as he feels the darkness of the hour... He divulges to us more of the whole story on prayer. So on this faithful night, the Lord and his closest disciples are on their way to the Mount of Olives. And so far, it's been one lump of bad news after another. One will betray him, and they all will be offended and deny him. And the night is just getting started. Now, though, they arrive at a distinct spot on the Mount of Olives. They enter Gethsemane. Now, for us who are familiar with the Gospels, this is a household name, the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet the fact remains is we know little to nothing about this place. Gethsemane makes no appearance in the Old Testament. It only shows up twice in the New Testament, here and in Matthew. And it's never even explicitly called a garden. Thus, we cannot confirm if this was one of Jesus' favorite spots that he frequented or just a one-off. Now, its name, Gethsemane, means oil press, so it most likely had a press to make olive oil from the surrounding olive trees on the mountain. Nevertheless, this place of insignificance and anonymity that Jesus visits gets remembered and recorded. Like the woman who just anointed Jesus to receive an everlasting memorial, so this olive press becomes part of Jesus' story and his work to be remembered. Places become famous for great deeds and events that happen there. Normandy is renowned for being stormed. The Alamo is famous for no one surviving. Well, our Lord performs a deed, endures an an ordeal in this nothing place that wins it an unforgivable name of distinction, Gethsemane. What, then, does our Savior do? Well, upon their arrival, Jesus is feeling a bit socially claustrophobic. He does love his disciples, but he needs some alone time. Thus, he has them take a seat while he goes off to pray by himself. 
Now, we've seen this numerous times in Mark, so private prayer is one of Jesus' habits. However, our Lord is closest with Peter, James, and John, so he lets them come with him a little deeper into the olive trees. Just like when he raised Jairus' daughter or on the Mount of Transfiguration, when there's an extra special work, Jesus brings these three along with him. Though as the four of them gain some seclusion, Jesus isn't looking so good. He becomes deeply anxious and distressed. In light of the full moon, his face appears as a ghost, and he's shaking. Fear, grief, and sorrow threaten to overtake him. In our day, we would call this a panic attack, which is no little thing. Though he does give voice to his consternation, my soul is sorrowful unto death. This seems to have a double sense. One, his sorrow swells to the point of giving him a heart attack. He feels like it could kill him. Two, he is anguished at the thought of death. He knows he will soon die, and the reality of death races his pulse and balloons his blood pressure. To put it another way, Jesus is scared to death. Though if you think about it, the anxiety, emotions, and vulnerability of our Lord here is a touch troubling. This doesn't quite measure up to the manliness of the age. Indeed, heroes meeting an inevitable death was not so uncommon in the Greek and Roman worlds. To die for your country or to die for your principles was a high and noble end that would get your name remembered in the history books. But how were the heroes expected to march towards death? Well, with a good stoic upper lip, heroes did not show emotion. They didn't have anxiety, but they welcomed death. Fear? What fear? Socrates is is one of the more well-known examples. For Socrates willingly drank the hemlock, declaring that death was better for him, for death would free his soul from the prison house of his body and let it fly to the gods. He wasn't distressed. He didn't need to pray. This is a brawny, heroic death. In contrast to this, though, Jesus is a mess of emotions and anxiety. A good Stoic would deem Jesus to be an embarrassment. What then explains the difference? Why is Jesus afraid as he's approaching death while a pagan Roman could be so brave and bold? Well, our Lord's word choice directs us to the answer. He quotes the refrain from Psalm 42 when he says, His soul is sorrowful unto death. And the fear of the psalmist hails not from death per se, but it surges from being forgotten by God. Note the psalmist says, The foes taunt him, Where is your God? He pleads with God, Why have you forgotten me? The fate of being forsaken by God in life and in death is the torment to his soul. And this terrifying this is terrifying for it spells judgment, it speaks of sin. To be forsaken is to be left in your depravity, to taste the bitter condemnation of God in perpetuity. Indeed, this is why pagans can make light of death. They suppress their sinfulness. I'm no sinner. No judgment awaits me. 
false doctrines. Blind them to the wrath of the true God. Lies about what happens after death pamper them into a fool's confidence. Pagans are like children walking up to a rattlesnake to pet it as if it was a kitty. Their bravery before death comes from being high on the devil's lie. But when the naked truth of sin stands before you, when the God of the glory of the Almighty's justice is unveiled, when the eternal waves of sulfur lap onto your shore, then no being, human or angel, can escape the panic of wrath. And this is what is bearing down on Jesus in a way more intense and more furious than any other individual. For this isn't merely physical death that awaits our shepherd, but it's the eternal pains of hell compressed into a moment. For it's not only for his, or it's not for his sins that he's getting crushed, but for the wickedness of all his people. To die for your sins hurts, but to perish for someone else's crimes smarts worse. Moreover, as the sun, the wrath that will burn him is far more personal. As sinners, we're enemies of God. Hatred stiff-arms God as a stranger, a foe. For, for Jesus, he's the Son of God, perfectly one and equal to the Father. The loving unity between the Father and the Son is eternally deeper and more holy than we can ever know. But in his upcoming death, Jesus will feel in his own flesh the wrath of his Father. There is no scale to measure such torment. Thus, to make light of Jesus' sorrow here only exposes one's folly and disrespect for what he's about to suffer. Rather, with the searing weight of judgment pressing down upon him, it's amazing that he held it together as he did. The reality of the cross is fast approaching, And this explains how Jesus prays. Note his distress is growing quickly. He needs to be alone, and so now he takes his leave from the three and delves deeper into the olive orchard. After a dozen steps or so, his legs give out. Jesus falls down on the ground, stripped of his strength by sorrow. He tumbles face first as the only posture fitting for the petitions he's about to put to the Father. And he cries out, Abba, Father. With a personal intimacy that only Jesus has, he doubly pleads with the Father. When your request is dire, you underscore the relationship to encourage action. Next, his confidence in the Father's ability is unshaken. All things are possible for you. Nothing is too difficult for God. There's no shelf too high Weight too heavy, no problem too impossible. There isn't a shadow of doubt or a grain of uncertainty in our Lord about the Father's unlimited power and infinite wisdom. He can do it all. Therefore, Jesus registers his plea. Remove this cup from me. This is that poisoned cup of wrath from the Old Testament. It is filled with spiked wine, 
the sludge of its toxic dregs are an inch thick at the bottom. It burns like battery acid going down, and it erupts in your belly into a fountain of vomit. This pinot of fury blitzes you out of, out of your mind drunk. For in this cup, the vileness of sin meets the holy purity of justice, and there's an explosion. And Jesus has to drain this cup dry. The torment is too much to comprehend. Surely the do-it-all father can figure out another way. There must be another solution. But alas, Jesus knows that his father's will must prevail. Not what I want, but your will. He puts the father's will first. He submits his own desires and urges to God's plan. Jesus humbly bends the knee to put the Father before himself. Now, sure, there is mystery in this. Being one with the Father, Jesus' will is in perfect concord with the Father's plan. There's no shadow of disagreement. And yet, in his humanity, in order to stand in our shoes completely, Jesus shrinks at what is absolutely terrifying. And so to become like us, though without sin, Jesus experiences an unanswered prayer. Yeah, remove this cup is a prayer of our Lord that was not answered. The burden of prayers unanswered is laid upon our Savior, which is one of the lessons we too have to learn. Sure, some of our prayers are sinful and foolish. Others of our petitions are good and proper. We pray for the salvation of a loved one. Nothing wrong with this. However, at times, the good we desire is not the good that the Father has in mind. And so we are taught to submit ourselves to thy will, not mine. Yes, unanswered prayer is part of the schoolhouse of obedience to train us in humble faith. Too often we prefer those verses that sound like a blank check. Whatever you ask in prayer, God will give to you. We yank the snippet out of context and treat it as if it is the whole story about prayer. And yet a major chapter in the story on prayer unfolds on this most important night in the life of Jesus. In fact, this is what makes Gethsemane famous. It's the place of unanswered prayer for Jesus. The Father denied the request of the Son, and Jesus responded in complete obedience. Thy will, not mine. And if it was good for our Savior, so it is good for us. A key part of our prayer life is to come to terms with being unanswered. When our prayers are refused, our wills must find peace, In God's will, we must learn the language, thy will, not mine. There's more about prayer here. After praying a bit, Jesus drags himself to his feet and returns to his three amigos, only to find them sleeping. Peter is snoring like a drunken blacksmith. John is dreaming of fig cakes, and James is just dead to the world. Jesus directs his frustration at Peter. He says, Simon, are you sleeping? You couldn't stay awake for a bit of time? Jesus brought them along 
for moral support. And during difficult times, you just need someone to be there. They don't have to say anything or do anything, but just be present. This is the silent comfort of nearness. A handheld eye contact across the room, knowing that they're on the other side of the door. But you at least want them awake. And so Jesus needed companionship of the three just to be near, but they all fell asleep on him. Instead of being present, they were absent in dozing. And so he encourages them to do better. Stay awake and pray. Now Jesus asked them not just to be awake, but also to pray. He even tells them what to pray for. You should be asking not to fall into temptation. He just told them that they would deny him. You would think they would be begging for the Father to withstand such a temptation. For this is a spiritually dangerous night. Surely the disciples can muster up the urgency to pray for safety. Though our Lord adds another detail in the story on prayer. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here, spirit refers to our human will, particularly our proper and upright desires and plans. While the flesh, it encompasses our physical abilities, our bodily constitutions, especially as they have been touched or infected by sin. Thus, when it comes to prayer, we desire what is good and pleasing to God. We want to pray rightly. We desire prayer to be a joy and delight. We try to say the same things, we or the, the right things, and we strive to pay attention. But then our flesh trips us up at every turn. Our minds get distracted by our to-do list. That itch on your nose won't let you concentrate. Pride puts ourselves at the center of our prayers. Silly wants weave worldly petitions. Self-righteousness makes us confident in, in how we feel about the prayer. Drowsiness lowers the shades, and sleep overcomes us in our prayers. Sometimes the flesh is sinful, and other times it's just weakness, as we fall prey to bodily frailties. Hunger, weariness, indigestion, and the list goes on. Thus our Lord informs us that prayer is hard. It is no easy business, this thing called prayer. At times, prayer is simple, delightful, and sweet. and other moments, prayer is convoluted, onerous, and frustrating. Prayer can be strenuous, as sleepiness of the flesh is potent. And this is bore out in the disciples. Jesus again goes away to pray alone, and for a second time he utters the same words, and his petition goes unanswered. He returns, and the disciples have passed out again. Their eyelids are too heavy to lift. Jesus chides them for their lethargy, and note, they don't even know what to say. This is so spot on. How often have you done something that wasn't good, but you have no excuse There's no comeback, for you just couldn't help yourself. It is midnight, after all, and Jesus says, Why are you sleeping and not praying? And all the disciples can do is a shoulder shrug. I don't know. We tried. 
And if two times makes it clear, the third time is the charm. Three times Jesus asks for the cup to pass, and three times he's denied. Three times our Lord goes unanswered in prayer to say three times, thy will, not mine. And three times the disciples fall asleep. The weakness of the flesh beats them with a three-game sweep. So much for Peter's vows of ever being loyal to Jesus. All Jesus asked was asked for was for the moral support to be present and awake, but Peter couldn't even keep his eyes open. How then is he going to resist temptation when it actually gets strong? And that time has come. Prayer time is over, for the hour has come. The cup is not passed. It is time to drink. The Son of Man is handed over to sinners. My betrayer has arrived. Here our Lord reveals one more tidbit on prayer, namely that it is not ceaseless. There is a time to pray and a time not to pray. To keep on praying can be a resistance to God's will. It can be the begging of a spoiled child. Thy will, not mine, often means you stop praying and then you humbly walk into the Father's will which is what Jesus does here. He accepts his unanswered prayer, and he grabs the cup of wrath with both hands, and he begins to drink. Yes, the first drops of the wine of wrath touch our Lord's lips here. In the sleep of his disciples, they abandon him. Jesus walks up to be betrayed, or Judas walks up to betray our Lord, and sinners lay violent hands upon him. And Jesus takes it. And this, dear saints, is your Savior beginning the wrath of God for your salvation. Because he did not fall asleep. Because his prayer was unanswered three times. Because he was abandoned by his friends and betrayed by Judas. Jesus drank the entire cup of wrath for your salvation. Jesus felt the panic of wrath to free you from the terror of condemnation. Our Lord experienced the true fear of death in all its eternal and spiritual terror, and he willingly died for you so that you might have life in him. Indeed, Jesus took the fear of death upon himself so that you might not be afraid of it. In the agony of your Savior, you once again then behold his love for you. And by his grief, you hear the joyful news of the gospel. And this amazing sorrow of Christ to endure the wrath of God calls us to believe in him and to bend the knee in praise and worship. Moreover, in Gethsemane, Jesus tells you the rest of the story about prayer. Namely, that it's hard. Our prayers often go unanswered. We learn, thy will, not mine. Our flesh is weak. Thus, as we experience the joys of prayer and its struggles, we come to appreciate all the more that Jesus prays for us, that the Spirit helps us to pray, 
Indeed, prayer is so hard for our weak bodies that Scripture promises a double help, both from the Son and the Spirit. Therefore, resting in the Spirit and the Son, may we keep praying. May we know when to stop praying. And may we learn to say in peace, thy will, not mine. For in the will of the Father is our highest good and his eternal glory. And if it was the will of the Father to crush the Son for your salvation, then how much more in his plan will our painful, pain-filled lives also redound for our good and his praise. Thus praise the Lord that Jesus drank that cup of wrath for us, and he helps us to pray, knowing that our greatest good is found not in our wills, but in the will of the Father. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray.